Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following program may offend those with delicate constitutions, Baptists, FCC commissioners, and the former Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan. It's Thursday, May 14th, 2020. From Slate's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump positioned himself in front of the whirly birdie blades of the chopper today. Just the best place to communicate, really. He looked ahead to when the hurly-burly is done. He plugged hydroxychloroquine once more. And... He tagged the whistleblower, Dr. Rick Bright, with this phrase. And he looks like an angry, disgruntled employee. Yes, yes, indeed he does. You know, a remarkable number of people in your employ do achieve that status. Nary a gruntled worker in the lot, I would say. To me, he's nothing more than a, a really uh, disgruntled, unhappy person. Then the president engaged in a little press criticism on the topic of testing. What we've done on testing, except the press doesn't write it that way because you have all this fake news. But what we've done on testing, we've now tested more than the entire world put together. Yes, the press doesn't write it that way because it is untrue, not really close to true. The U.S. has done a little under 10 and a half million tests. Take the next three countries, Russia, Germany, and Italy, they've done more to say nothing of the whole world combined. And then he went into his whirly bird and gave a speech at a PPE factory while he wasn't wearing a mask. I guess that'd be rubbing it in, taking one of their orders. Maybe you'd have to register that with the Office of Ethics, a robust offer during this administration. And after that, it was off to do some Fox News. I'm going to resort now to my rule about how to treat Donald Trump during the pandemic. He is a sideshow. Fact check him if you will. I did. Not that it will stop him, but realize everything he says or does is some sideways blather that has no more effect on the actual efforts to stop a virus than a child flapping his arms has a chance to redirect a twister. That child should be and probably would be wearing a mask, however. What did catch my eye was not anything President Trump said, but this article in the New York Times about piggies. These are dark days on many American pig farms. Coronavirus outbreaks at meatpacking plants across the Midwest have created a backlog of pigs that are ready for slaughter but have nowhere to go. Hundreds of thousands of pigs have grown too large to be slaughtered commercially, forcing farmers to kill them and dispose of their carcasses without processing them into food. They talk about 600,000 pigs in Iowa facing this fate in the next six weeks. One farmer in the Times is quoted as saying, this will drive people out of farming. There will be suicides in rural America. I mean, and when you think just of these hundreds of thousands of pigs being gassed or shot, individually shot, I got to say, it's just, well, whatever it is should actually be no different from the baseline which is that all these pigs would normally be killed anyway, maybe not with a shot to the head, but with a knife to the heart. Wasting meat is a shame, and I suppose it's very unpleasant for the individual farmer who literally had to go and shoot his pigs in the head one by one. But remember, the alternative is in fact 
stabbing the pigs one by one. You get someone else to do it, maybe you stun them first. It is a pig apocalypse either way. The only question is whether we get to eat them afterwards. So sorry to turn the jailer into the executioner, but the shock and the horror, it's not quite as stark as the New York Times would like to convey. And me, as for me personally, I say it's either I eat pork and don't shed a tear, or I do shed a tear, and because I'm shedding a tear, I therefore choose not to eat pork. I happen to be in the pork eating club, and therefore I must not be a hypocrite. I must not allow myself to feel any real pangs of regret beyond those that I would feel if, say, a perfectly good rack of ribs fell on a sawdust-covered floor. On the show today, I spiel about the death rates among communities of color, but there are differences on exactly which hue we're discussing. But first, he was in the light bulb business, and then, through a series of supply chain snafus, he became a purveyor of masks. Not surgical masks, but masks that one could wear to hopefully avoid the coronavirus. Joel Shulman's light bulb business was doing gangbusters. He was forced into the mask business, not doing, he says, quite as well, but it's at least keeping him afloat. Joel Shulman's foray into the mask game up next. So on the gist, I've discussed epidemiology and virology and, of course, political science. But I think there's one area that's been underexplored, and that is, of course, light bulbs. Joel Shulman joins me now. You'll find out why. There's a little more to it than that. He is in the uh, distribution game for efficient lighting systems. And he recently had an experience that happened to him that says something about our current distribution of PPE, how the states are vying against each other for contracts. He's a voice in the middle of it to shed some light, if you will. Hello, Joel, will you? Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Mike. And I'm, I'm excited to show you the light about masks. All right, shed there you go. That's good. Yeah, let's keep doing it. So let's go back to a couple months before maybe the coronavirus was at least on the minds of Americans. Describe what your business usually is. Yeah, so usually I am an importer and manufacturer and distributor of energy-efficient LED lights. So we work with some end users, universities and municipalities, and some distribution houses and um, commercial and industrial facilities to help them get more energy-efficient and have more energy-efficient lighting. And where do you import from? Well, everything we have uh, comes from China. And then we have warehouses uh, across the country to um, you know, help get it to our customers faster. So since this uh, broke out in Wuhan and then spread, there was a disruption in the supply chain. How did that affect you? So that was a really interesting and difficult time because every year for the Chinese New Year, Chinese distribution and manufacturing essentially shuts down. And uh, it's for a period of two to three, maybe four weeks, depending on the factory that we're working with. So we had prepared for this, for this, this slowdown. But what was interesting is, and sad was that the Chinese New Year was almost essentially canceled this year because no one was able to travel or get to their families or, or, or celebrate the way that they're used to because of the coronavirus. 
And so as we were preparing for, for this, we said, okay, we'll get our, our warehouses supplied up. We'll, we'll get uh, as many lights as we can of our, our hot sellers, not knowing that after the Chinese New Year, they would not go back to work for another you know, four weeks or so. And so what was interesting or scary, sad, a lot of emotions and feelings is um, one, feeling really terrible for all of these people who work so hard throughout the year and then don't get their, their big holiday, you know, it's cancel right. Christmas, you know, it's, it's really, really sad. I feel I, I, there was a documentary about how the Chinese New Year is like the, the largest mass migration of, of, of humans in, in the world at one, one of them. And it's a big deal. So just as their manufacturing was no longer available, we still had a demand. Then they started to go back to work and things started to get back to normal for them. And just as it was starting to get back to normal for them, it was starting to hit the United States in such a way where our states were starting to close down and our cities were starting to close down. So now <laughs> I have the situation where now I can get as many lights as I want from China. They're back to manufacturing and, and at their factories, but there's not a demand for them here and we don't need them. So how do you pivot? So I am really lucky that I've been doing business in China for the last 10 years. And before that, I lived in China for about five years. So the manufacturers and the factories that I work with, I've become pretty close with. And they're friends. And as this was happening in the United States, every day I started to get boxes in the mail of of different things that were, were needed here. They sent me masks. They sent me gloves. They sent me hand sanitizer. They sent me disinfecting wipes. They, all these things that we were not able to get at our grocery stores, they were sending to us and they were saying to me, this is not a joke. This is a really big issue. We just mm -hmm. went through all of this. Take care of yourself. Wear these masks. Uh, I have a three-year-old daughter. Here's baby masks. Have her wear them. There was no bill for them. There was no charge for shipping. There's no charge for their mask. It was just, here's these masks. Take care of yourself. So as a friendly gesture, they gave you some supplies, what, just for you and your family? For me and my family, but, you know, I ended up with more than I needed for, for my, my wife and my daughter and I. And so I sent them out to, you know, my friends and family, and I sent them out to them. And that's really how this got started was by sending it to them. They said, wow, how are you able to get these? We need more. How can you get more? I sent an email blast out through MailChimp to my customers and said, hey, these are these masks, non-medical masks. Is anyone interested in them? And that Friday, I had orders for 40,000 masks. So a MailChimp right. where generally no one reads my blasts now was like uh -huh. the most read thing that I could ever imagine. Um, my customers had sent it on to their local fire departments. They had sent it on to their local churches, their local everything. And the orders just started coming, pouring in. I read a story in Forbes about a broker, a middleman. His name was actually Remington Schmidt. I think he might exist. We tried to, we, yeah, we tried to track him down. But it was a TikTok of his day, and he had this cache of masks, and there's a market apparently, and a state bid for them, a private company from overseas bid for them, and he's in there trying to sell the masks as one would, I don't know, pork bellies or any other commodity, maximize his price, give whatever cut to where he got the masks, and then move on. Do you have any knowledge of that market or even that dynamic? 
Yeah, that's like you said, it's as, as a commodity, that's kind of, you know, how these prices were fluctuating before. You know, they're, they're fluctuating from 10, 30% a day based on logistics, based on raw materials. So in that sense, like, yeah, there's a broker. And, and I, I think that that's been really interesting because I've had a few interactions with brokers where the quantities are really, really high. I mean, we're talking anywhere from 5 million to 30 million masks. So right. we're talking really big money. And yeah, a um, whole state wants to buy. California is the client, let's say. Right. right. I mean, and so the broker won't tell you who their client is. They'll say, I'm representing a client who needs this much. And what's really nice for me is I'm working with people that I know and that I trust. I can give them the terms. I can give them, you know, I'm working with people who I know are just trying to get them to the people that they need them. But what's interesting with a broker is I'll say to them, I have a non-medical mask. And they'll say, yeah, 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 it doesn't matter. And I was like, well, is your client a hospital? And they'll say, yeah. And I was like, well, if I, from China, am sending a non-medical mask that on the box says non-medical for civilian use only, goes through Chinese customs that way, and then goes into the United States customs and is going through the FDA checks and everything, and it says for civilian use only, not for medical supplies, and then it is being sent to XYZ hospital, why would a hospital be buying 5 million masks that are not for medical use? <laughs> We're right. going to get in trouble. This isn't going to work. And then they'll say, well, no, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I was like, all right, well, well, then let's talk about the logistics of it all. And they'll say, well, we need to have it on the ground. We'll come and we'll, we'll, we'll give you a check for it. Because you're talking about 5 million masks, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, can you give me some type of deposit? Or what can you do so that, because if I'm bringing in 5 million masks, they're sold. We're, we've got customers who want them. You know, we're not just bringing them in to hold them. We're, we're bringing them in because people want them. And it's a, it's a real what came first, the chicken or the egg. And you're negotiating with people that you don't necessarily know or trust. So it's they want the masks before any money is changed hands. And, 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 but you need to have some type of agreement, but they're not willing to sign any agreements. And then also it's a game of telephone because they're a broker for someone who's representing someone else. It's telephone. The children's game where, you know, all types of promises are made and then nothing ends up happening. So I'm very curious about this next question. The president has said, but also people with more expertise in him than him, has said that this shows that we have supply chain problems. Essentially, he's critical of the attenuated supply chain. He says everything should be made in America. That's not maybe realistic. And he says that for political reasons. But others have said, you know, he might have a point. The supply chain is made so that there's not a lot of supply, but they can ramp up to deliver supply when needed. Only when something like this hits, it shows the flaws of the system. You're a guy who's been doing business in China for years and years and years. Has this made you come to any conclusions, other conclusions about that supply chain question? Well, I think that's something that's interesting, you know, with regards to the president is, you know, before this happened, there was um, the trade war with China, right? Right. And with the trade war with China, there was an increase on the tariffs of Chinese products coming into the United States. And um, the majority of those products had a 25% increase, including my lights. So I went from what was a 3.9% tariff 
to a essentially a, a 30% tariff. That's a big increase. <laughs> and even with these masks, there was anti-dumping regulations on these where they also had the 25% increase. So it's generally a 7% tariff, and now it's increased by 25%. But they've taken that off during this time, the 25%. And I, I just find it fascinating because if you're going to have a trade war and you're going to do this, then you really just need to figure out where these things will come from otherwise. By the way, I want to make something clear. Did they eliminate just the additional 25% tariff on the masks or all the tariff on the masks? Just the additional 25%. So there's still a 7% tariff on the masks. In this so I, time I think, of huge need where China has the mask, we're still imposing a 7% tariff, which would, if anything, dissuade, maybe it's not actually having that effect, but, you know, economic theory would hold this would dissuade the purchase and distribution of the good if there is a tariff on that good. Uh, yeah, that's it's it's really strange. I, I think it's really strange as well because when people are talking about price gouging and having to pay too much for masks and things like that, and I mean something that goes into that bottom line is that seven percent. And so you know, right. at seven percent, we're we're talking about more than pennies. That's the difference between making a deal go through or not go through, especially with brokers. <laughs> Yeah, and the U.S. government literally collects that. That's where it's... Yeah, they collect it. And so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of complaining of, oh, well, we're not able to get it done, and oh, the prices are too high and all that. Well, that's, that's, that's part of the reason. Joel Shulman used to be in the light game. Now he is a mask distributor. You might wish to go to his website, getmasknow.com. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Now the spiel. Coronavirus has killed at least 81,000 Americans thus far. I'm sure it's actually much, much more than that. If we properly calculate excess deaths, we'll find out that even at this moment, it's probably somewhere over 100,000. And by the time this is all done, it is going to be unavoidable to reach the sextuple digits. The supposedly indiscriminate killer has been selecting its victims, however, with the methodical remorselessness of the most determined serial murderer. The old, the poor, and African Americans are more likely to be killed than the wealthy, the young, and white Americans. How much more? Well, according to APM Research Labs that collects and crunches all the state-level data, COVID-19 mortality rate for black Americans is 2.6 times higher than the rate for whites. Why? Well, here's the most common explanation. I could have tapped a number of voices for a variation on this response, but let me quote the New Yorker's Jelani Cobb, as he said to MSNBC, to those who are actually looking at what's going on in this country, coronavirus revealed nothing to us other than the kind of cruel everyday frequency of the unjust and unequal discriminatory legacy, the policies and the histories in this country we now see having a mathematical face put to them. The Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, is like Cobb, a black man, but as a White House employee in the Trump administration, he is disincentivized to dwell on racial disparities. Still, he made similar claims and gave similar explanations. When you look at being black in America, number one, uh, people unfortunately are more likely to be of low socioeconomic status which makes it harder to social distance. Number two, we know that blacks are more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and I've shared... That's actually not too far off at what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, though she wouldn't say, unfortunately, before mentioning 
economics. She would say something like intentionally when speaking of African-Americans place on the economic ladder. Here is what she did say. On top of that, this crisis is happening in a context of racial and income inequality, which means that our lowest income and our blackest and brownest communities are the hardest hit and are experiencing the largest amounts of casualties due to COVID-19. Okay, so here are the stats in New York. African-American deaths, 5,569. White deaths, 5,001. Remember, the white population of New York is over 40%. The black population is around 25%. But the Latino population is 29%, according to the Census Bureau. In fact, when I cited that statistic of whites being 40% of the population, that's not exactly true because if you look at the category white, not Hispanic, you'll find that that is about 20 32% of the population. A lot of Latino people also consider themselves to be white. So what this is saying is that while black people truly are dying at a significantly higher rate than white people in New York, throughout the country, Latino people actually aren't. A little bit higher, but not much higher. Not much higher than whites. New York is about 30% white and 30% Latino, and the deaths from COVID roughly match those percentages. Pretty closely, in fact. The reason I bring this up is that while I do sign on to the explanation for why coronavirus deaths are showing up in communities of color at greater rates, the explanation being that there are deprivations within those communities and those deprivations are presenting themselves in the death number, I very much hope that the analysis does not end there. Because we should note that Hispanic people are actually not dying at much higher a rate than white people, and Asian Americans are dying at almost the exact same rate as white people. Economics, pure economics, cannot explain this. Real median household income is highest in America for Asians. They're over 80,000. Then for whites, it's 68,000. Latinos, it's 50,000. And African Americans, 40,000. Age has something to do with it. Coronavirus decimates the old. Hispanics are a young ethnic group by and large. But let's look at nursing homes. According to the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety, blacks make up 14% of nursing home residents, the same as their overall representation in the population. But Latinos only make up 4.3%, roughly a third of the total. Family bonds, cultural attitudes towards elder care might well factor in, as do Other factors tied in with the notion that race is a proxy for wealth and wealth is a proxy for health care, as well as the underlying health that the Surgeon General was talking about. It's all part of the mix, as is maybe some specifics about this virus, certainly where we live, how we live, where we work, and also factors we hadn't thought of. And that's important. It can't all be explained by what we've been saying all along. I don't want to cite stats and numbers at you all day. I don't want to give the impression that I disagree with the basic premise that black people are disproportionately affected because black people are worse off economically, psychologically, physically in America. But I also want the research and scholarship not to stop there. I want to really look into why these disparities exist in coronavirus deaths. And I want to not simply say black and brown people are affected worse just because that phrase rolls off the tongue in some circles. The facts are black people are affected much worse than brown people are affected, if you want to use brown people as a stand-in for Latinx people. 
But South Asians and Asians are affected much less than that. I haven't even talked about Native Americans, but I will do so in the future. As a general rule of thumb, I remain suspicious of a new, huge novel, it's right in the name of novel coronavirus, novel development that doesn't actually tell us anything we didn't already know. So when Jelani Cobb talks about the coronavirus, revealing nothing to us other than, quote, the kind of cruel everyday frequency of the unjust and unequal and discriminatory legacy, I do not deny the premise. But I say, maybe it says some things in addition to that, some things more subtle, Something different than the old, it confirms what we've been saying all along. When Mara Gay in the New York Times writes about her own terrible experience with the coronavirus, she says this, why are more people dying of this disease in the United States than anywhere else in the world? Because we live in a broken country with a broken healthcare system. Because even though people of all races and backgrounds are suffering, the disease in the United States has hit black and brown and indigenous people the hardest, and we are seen as expendable. Well, If the healthcare system is broken, broken though it may be, that's not why we're getting hit the hardest in the world. Because if it were, then you would say Donald Trump has really nothing to do with why we're getting hit the hardest in the world. He didn't invent the healthcare system and there was no way for him sufficiently to pull it up from something other than broken in three years. Not that he had any inclination to do so. And by the way, America doesn't have the worst healthcare system in the world. It compares unfavorably to other economically advanced countries, but it's better than, say, South Africa. South Africa is doing a lot better with the coronavirus than America is. So is Thailand. Not as good healthcare in Thailand, much better at coronavirus. This remarkable, never-before-seen event simply confirms what I thought all along. It's a trap. It's a trap to be resisted. We can think better than that. Otherwise, we won't ask the right questions. We won't have the right insights. We won't be able to face the next crisis with anything stronger than, well, we always knew this would happen. There is nothing we could do. It's just like what we've been saying all along. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST's associate producer. She'd love to order her pork this way. Flat car, drag it through the garden and hemorrhage. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, is absolutely appalled that Margaret would order a pork chop with lettuce and tomato and ketchup. The GIST. Some days I long for what meets the pigs in the slaughterhouse. A stun gun followed by desanguination. Ah, desanguination. Oom peru, de peru, du peru. And thanks for listening.